will, turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, we just finished up the section, the three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, where Paul really dealt with the issue of the Holy Spirit, the incredible gift that God gave to each and every one of us as believers, poured out on the day of Pentecost, and now we have the indwelling, the dunamis, the power of God, of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so Paul begins to explain and to talk about the operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So not only is it this, you know, this power of God and the presence of God in us, but also also, the Holy Spirit brings gifts uh, also, that we have the gifts uh, in the Spirit that He gives to believers that are made for the equipping and the building up of the body of Christ. Now, in Corinth, there wasn't a shortage of spiritual gifts. The problem was the proper use and the purpose of the spiritual gifts. In Corinth, remember, they're carnal, they're fleshly. They're always competing with each other. They're always trying to be the super saint with each other. And, and so they had taken and used spiritual gifts as another area to compare one another as to you know who is greater than the next. And, and Paul, so he kind of begins by validating, yes, absolutely, God is the one that gives us those spiritual gifts. There's offices and motivations, and, and then there are the, the giftings. And so he, he, he kind of lists out the various different offices and operation of the Spirit. And, and, but he then explains that the purpose for the gift is not to exalt the person that's been given the gift, but that that gift would be used for the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul moves from that point of making sure that it is servanthood, that the gift is in operation in servanthood. And then he pulls back to talk about the motivation of love. He says, you know, if you've got every single gift, if you've got all knowledge, if you can speak in, in every single tongue that there is, but you don't have love, you are nothing. You've missed the entire purpose uh, that God has given us these gifts, and that is to love others through these gifts. And and so then Paul pulls back to the back to the corporate setting, back to worship services. Where should the gifts operate? How should they operate? And, and so Paul once again talked about the use of tongues versus teaching and prophecy. Talked about in the corporate setting that, that we need to be speaking in a language that each other understands. And, and so the gift of tongues really is a private prayer language. There is a, a, a small corporate use. There needs to be an interpretation for it just a couple at a time. And, and that's basically it. And so, once again, the building up uh, of the body of Christ. And, and so the gifts, how important they are, what a blessing they are to the church. Nothing to be afraid of or to shy away from. God's given each and every one of us gifts discovering those gifts, learning how to start to function in those gifts, and then being able to use them within the body of Christ. That, that is God's design and plan for the church. 
As we come to this 15th chapter now, Paul is going to shift gears. He's basically going to pull back. This entire chapter is going to deal with a single doctrine, the doctrine of the uh, resurrection. And so really it's kind of like you know, a new believers class. And in new believers class, you really touch on the key foundational doctrines. Well, the key, the single most important doctrinal understanding is the doctrine of the resurrection. And in this 15th chapter, you're going to see the most extensive treatment of this topic that we have in the entire New Testament. And so Paul is really going to press forwards on this doctrine. Now, it's not that the Corinthians struggled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their questions more were about the resurrection of believers and then the resurrection of unbelievers. And so Paul is going to kind of now talk about the, the different resurrections, and he's going to begin with the chief resurrection, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you're going to see now him kind of lay out in sort of a new believers class that the evidences and the reasons and the foundational importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then all other doctrines build off of that doctrine. If there is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then all other doctrines fall down. And so it is the cornerstone of our faith. And so Paul begins there. Not that there's a problem with it in the Corinthian church, but he just uses that as his starting place to be able to bring about clarity on the other areas that they were struggling in. So let's see how Paul now addresses this uh, issue. And it begins in the first verse. Moreover, brethren, <clears throat> I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so here we see that Paul begins by affirming the resurrection of Jesus. And, and later on, he is going to move on to the resurrection of believers and non-believers. He begins by addressing them as brethren and so assures them that as he's writing to them, he recognizes them as fellow Christians. We see here that it's an expression of, uh, of love and and the gospel which I preached unto you. Now, the gospel, we see that word means good news. And, and what is the good news? What is uh, the gospel? Well, the good news is that your sins have been forgiven and my sins have been forgiven. Stop and think about that. Every offense that you have committed against God has been forgiven you. You have been washed and clean, and now you have a right relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ there upon the cross. And that is the glorious good news. And so Paul came and he preached that good news that we can be reconciled to God. Though our sins may be as scarlet, you can be washed white as snow. And, and that in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he says that you receive received that. You know, Paul preached that every place he went, Paul preached, but not every place was receptive to the gospel. But in Corinth, they received it and they believed and they entered into the new covenant in which you're saved and also in which you, you stand. He says, if you hold fast, if you hold fast uh, onto your faith. And so, you know, holding fast implies that, you, you know, that there is someone or something that's wanting to snatch that gospel 
gospel or to try and take the gospel away from the Corinthian Christians. And, and so Paul warns about being removed you know, from the simplicity that is in Christ and into vain philosophies and, and getting into divisive doctrine and awe. And so, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so, Paul now just kind of once again reviews the gospel that he had preached there. Paul didn't invent the gospel. Paul didn't, you know, sit down and study the Word of God and then come to the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world. No, he received it. He received it directly from the Lord. In Galatians 1, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul wasn't built up in a school of ministry, learned about the doctrine of salvation, and then went and started to preach it and elsewhere. Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and, and the gospel was given to him by Jesus Christ directly. And then he was commissioned as an apostle to then go to the Gentiles. And so here we see that you know, Paul didn't learn it from Peter or learn it from any of the other apostles and then extend it on. It came straight from Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins. That is the, the basis of the doctrine of the good news. We see the death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the centerpiece uh, of the gospel. Back in chapter 1, you remember Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. And so that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he was the Lamb of God that took away the sins uh, of the world. And so it is a crucified Christ that we preach. And he says in this crucified Christ, this, this Messiah, he, he says uh, now that this was all according to the scriptures. We see that to the Jews it was a stumbling block. You see, they were waiting for the Messiah, but they never expected that the Messiah would die. And so the crucified Christ, the crucified Messiah, that that was a stumbling block. To the, to the Greeks, it was foolishness. And so Peter says, but all of this now was in accordance to the Scripture. We see that Peter, when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and, and he says, and, and him, meaning Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter on the day of Pentecost when he is preaching says that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was done by the foreknowledge of God, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was completely planned. And so this was not something that just happened. And he says, and it was according to the scriptures. Now, here Peter is talking about the fact and Paul is reaffirming 
that the, the picture of the suffering Jesus, of the suffering Messiah, of the crucified Savior, is not a new doctrine. The Jews, if they would look at the scriptures, would be able to see where God had said that these things were going to take place. You remember in Isaiah chapter 53, where the Bible tells us, and Isaiah writes of Jesus, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement, the penalty for our peace, was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You remember when he stands before Herod, and Herod questions him that Jesus answers him not a word. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That means that he was executed, he was cut off, he was crucified. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves, but with the rich at his death. He was buried in the rich man's tomb, Joseph's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 53, the description of the events that would lead up to and include the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so here we see that, you know, when Paul was ministering to the Jews, he wanted to be able to show them from the scriptures that these things happen, he says, according to the scriptures. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody that knew the scriptures and had studied the scriptures that, that these things were all in the shadows with regards to the Messiah and that he was buried, verse 4, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Here twice we see Paul saying according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. Isaiah 53 talks about he was made in his grave with the, uh, with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And he rose again the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures. And so here we see the fulfillment in two typologies in the Old Testament. They were the types of the shadows of the things to come. We have Abraham and Jonah. Both of them are typologies of the fact that he would rise again on the third day. Now, you remember with Abraham and how Abraham has his son Isaac, the son of promise. And you will remember that God tells him to take your son, your only son Isaac, and to offer him as a sacrifice on the mount that I will show you. And how then Abraham, after being told that he was to sacrifice his son, goes on this journey for three days. And he goes to Mount Moriah where God leads him to. And, and there they left the servant at the base of the mountain and they begin to climb. And Isaac says to him, Father, the, there is the wood that we have and fire we have, but we don't have a, a sacrifice. 
And you remember how Abraham says to Isaac that God will provide himself a sacrifice. And how that Abraham then bound uh, Isaac and placed him on the altar. And then God spoke to Abraham and, and withheld uh, his hand. And a ram had been caught by the horns in the thicket. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. The Lord will provide. And so in Abraham, in his mind, as he is going to sacrifice his son, he for three days, he was dead to him during that journey. And so uh, we see there on Mount Moriah, 2,000 years later is where God's son was sacrificed for our sins. The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice for you and for me. You'll remember with Jonah, the story of Jonah, when the Jews asked Jesus for, uh, for a sign. They were not believing, wanted to see a sign demonstrating the proof of his Messiahship. You remember that he responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign is going to be given unto you except the sign of Jonah the prophet, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And, and so here we see that now, in the types and in the shadows, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. In Psalm, one, in Psalm 16, verses 8, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. And therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so Jesus was put into the grave, but he never saw corruption. He was raised uh, again. Hosea 6 2 it says and after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight you remember that Jesus over and over spoke of his own resurrection spoke that if you destroy this temple <laughs> that it will be raised up again in three days it will be rebuilt and so the testimony of Jesus the testimony of the scriptures we see here that over and over either directly or indirectly literally or figuratively in the Old Testament in the shadows and and in the foretelling of Jesus's death burial and uh, resurrection. And so here Paul gives the, the evidences that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not something that he invented, but that this was all done in accordance to the holy scriptures that had been recorded hundreds and even thousand years uh, earlier. And that he was seen, verse 5, by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. 
having now demonstrated the doctrine of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he now talks about the evidence of, uh, of the resurrected Lord and the number of people that personally he appeared to. He begins with Cephas, begins with Peter. Peter was the first apostle that Jesus appeared to. Now, Mary was the first person that Jesus uh, appeared to. But we see here that, uh, that Peter is the, is the first of the apostles. And, and so, then by the twelve, Jesus next appeared to the apostles as they were gathered together in the upper room that night. So when the appearances to the apostles, it began with Peter first, and then you know he says to the twelve. When Paul writes of the twelve, he's using it as a figurative title. At the first meeting, technically there were ten, but they were known as the, as the apostles, as the twelve. That was their, their title. Now, Thomas wasn't there and Judas wasn't there on that first appearance, but, uh, but here Paul says that it was first, the first apostle was Peter, then to the group of them, and then extended beyond that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now, 500 at the same time and in the same place. That is a large group of witnesses. And, and he says, of whom the greater part remain to the present, even though it's more than two decades later that Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. Many, many, many of those 500 were still alive. They were parts of the early church. They were well known to everybody. Some of them had died, he says. You know, some of them have fallen asleep. But this now is very common to have been part of that 500 and those stories, the witnesses. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. He was seen by James. We're not told which James Christ appeared to. There were two apostles that were named James. The son of Zebedee and also the son of Alphaeus were named James. But most scholars believe that this was the James who was the half-brother of the Lord and the author of the letter to James. James was a, a key leader in the early Jerusalem church. And, and James was a prayer warrior. He was known as a, an incredible man of prayer. They used to nickname him Camel Knees because his knees were, uh, were so thick with calluses from the time that, that, he, would, that he would pray. James is the, the writer of the book of James. And if you ever get a chance to do a Bible study on the book of James, that, that would be a, a great Bible study to, uh, to do. That's an unabashed plug for our Bible studies there. We don't know anything about that meeting. John's Gospel, I love John's Gospel because John will take us into these intimate moments where Jesus was one-on-one -on -one with people. Takes us into the story of Nicodemus where he comes to him by night and, and he's got questions and he just doesn't understand. And John gives us that, that moment. The woman at the well, 
when Jesus now comes to her and, and they have their interaction with one another and these amazing moments. And, and this is a moment that we don't get. The appearance of Jesus to James. I believe this is his half-brother, and, and, and I try to imagine what that moment had to have been like. I mean, imagine that Jesus is your older brother. Imagine, you know, brothers, if, if you've ever had a brother, you're friends and playmates, and, and you run around and you grow up together, and you, and you eat at the table, and, and the intimacy and the intertwining of life and brotherhood. And so Jesus was his older brother. They lose their dad. Joseph dies. And Jesus is the oldest brother. And he takes up the carpentry shop. And, and there he is running the carpentry shop. And then all of a sudden he, he leaves. He, he leaves Nazareth. He leaves the, the, the village, the, the wood shop. And, and the next thing you know, we're hearing that he's teaching and that people are starting to follow him and he's out wandering around homeless now and crowds are coming and and the next thing is people are saying he's the messiah i mean this is getting crazy mom's getting nervous the the romans if he continues to attract attention like this they're they're gonna come and kill him Crucifixion was no joke. And there were crucified people all over the place. The threat of Rome was very real, and, and they were concerned about him. They come to him, the brothers and, and mom, to try and pull him away from, from everything that is going on. He completely did not believe that his brother was the Messiah at all until after the resurrection. I wonder if after the resurrection, James comes to the understanding that his brother is the Messiah before Jesus appears to him. Or does Jesus appear to him when he still is in a state of unbelief? And, and now that meeting with James brings him to that place of, of faith. I wonder what that must have been like for James. How did I ever doubt you? How did I not know? Will you forgive me for not believing in you when you were here ministering? But Jesus appears to James. Paul says he didn't just appear to James. He appeared to me also. And I'm a, an apostle that was born out of due time. Paul had that incredible Damascus conversion where he is the enemy of the church. He is the chief persecutor of the saints. He is heading to Damascus to arrest uh, more Christians. And, and there, 
That is when the Lord meets him. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He says, I... I'm an apostle that was born out of due time. You see, all the other apostles, they, they were a part of Jesus' earthly ministry, but, but Paul comes along much later. His apostleship now was directly by Christ's commissioning of him to go and to be that apostle. So, you know, all the other apostles are formed, and then, and then there's Paul. He's like the bonus baby apostle, you know, that comes along unexpectedly at the, uh, at the end. And, and he says, you know, that, that though I'm an apostle, he says, you know, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. I'm not who I was. I used to be the chief persecutor of the church. That's who I was. But who I am now is simply by the grace of God. I don't deserve it. I didn't sign up for it. There wasn't a, anybody interested in becoming an apostle, sign up for this apostle class and Paul said, you know, I think that I'll, I, I, I would like to be an apostle. I would like to take that class, you know. He says, no, I, I am what I am by the, grace of, by the grace of God. And he recognizes that he didn't merit it and he didn't deserve it. That's what grace is, you know. It, it, it's that you don't deserve it. It's just given to you. And that's the love of God. That's the grace of God of God that Paul had experienced. And his grace toward me was not in, in vain. You know, I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving of this. Jesus said that where there is much forgiveness, there is much love. And in Paul, there was that incredible forgiveness for, for the persecution of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. And so that forgiveness, that spawned great love in Paul. And that great love was then manifested by the labor. You know, Lord, I am, I am so sorry for all that I have done. And, and Paul now wanted to just serve so purely, so fully, so completely that he dedicates every breath of his life to the building of the church. He will suffer whatever he has to suffer. There is no limit to what Paul will do to show his love and devotion to the calling to which he felt that he never deserved. But by the grace of God, he is what he is. Today you are by the grace of God who, who you are today. And you're not who you were but you are now what you are. You are forgiven and washed and redeemed and your home is in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and God's desire is to use you to love and to touch others until you breathe your, your last breath. You are today who you are. 
by the grace of God. By the grace of God. And so, Paul here says in verse 11, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And, and so whether it was Peter at Pentecost or whether it was you know, him preaching, wherever you heard the gospel, the gospel was preached and, and you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, verse 12, then he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so this is now where the, the challenge to the doctrine of the resurrection was first kind of creeping into the church there in Corinth. And nobody really knows where it came from. The early Gnostics, uh, uh, they brought this Martin and others denied the resurrection from the dead. But it was a, a doctrine that crept uh, in to the early church. It found footing with the Greeks because the, the Greeks and their philosophy really believed in a dualism in the world around. That was an ancient you know, tenant of Greek philosophy. It was generally attributed to Plato. And dualism basically says that everything spiritual is intrinsically good and everything physical is intrinsically evil. And so the evil and the good, the physical is evil and the, and the spiritual is good. So to Greek philosophy, the body is, is evil, but the spirit is good. So the idea to a Greek that you would depart from your body, but then you would now be rejoined back together with that evil that you had gotten rid of the resurrection. They, they, they really struggled with that whole concept of being reunited back with the physical body. Now, also with the Jews, remember that there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they disagreed over the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. So if Sadducees became believers in the early church, then that issue of the resurrection is now a, a holdover struggle for them. And, and, and so the, there was the, you know, these questions uh, here. It's possible that, you know, uh, that some there were doubting the, the resurrection. But Paul now says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Paul is going to kind of lay out the argument. You know, the Bible tells us, come, let us reason together. This is Paul reasoning now. Let's talk this through. Let's walk this out. And so if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. In other words, the, the resurrection isn't an important doctrine. It's the chief cornerstone of our faith. You throw the resurrection out, and there isn't a, a cornerstone to set it on. He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, the believers that died trusting in, in their salvation in Christ Jesus, then, then they've fallen asleep and, and they're not saved. They've perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If the resurrection didn't really happen, 
then we believe in something that isn't true. And the only benefit that we have is this hope that's a false hope. And so we are the most pitiable of all people if our hope is this false hope. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits before the Israelites could come and harvest their crops, they were to bring a, a representative sample uh, to the priests as an offering to the Lord. So before they would go and harvest, they would do just a small little bit, come and bring it to the Lord, offer it to the Lord. That was known as the first fruits. So here, Paul's point is, is that Christ's resurrection was that first fruit of the resurrection that is now going to come afterwards. Christ made an offering of himself to the Father uh, on our behalf. For since by man came death, verse 21, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming, the resurrection of the believers, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies uh, under his feet. And so here we see that you know, Christ is raised first from the dead and he is going to then reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet or you know, all are in subjection to Jesus Christ. We see that Christ has ascended into heaven. He's going to return. He's going to establish the millennial reign here upon the earth. And there is going to be the, the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goat, and we enter into the millennial reign. This incredible time of righteousness upon the earth when, when the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and we are going to experience the, the incredible beauty and glory of the millennial kingdom. There will be those that have lived through the tribulation period. And, and so the population of the earth will begin to grow again. The saints have returned with the Lord and, and we are governing the, the world world in Christ's reign here. And there's this righteousness on the earth, but it's a forced righteousness. It's a forced righteousness. Satan is bound for the thousand years in the Abuso. And, and at the end, Satan is let out one last time. And now he goes after the hearts of the people. And there, there, there is a rebellion that he raises, one final rebellion. And then after that rebellion, that is now when Satan is destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. That is when death is now no more. And there is the great white throne of judgment. And, and then after that, Everything is now in subjection and now into that eternal state that Paul is talking about. He says the last enemy that will be destroyed is, is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is, is accepted. He's talking about the Father. Now when all things are made subject to him, 
then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And so here we see that, that this is the way that things are going to progress. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit ruling over the universe. All things put in subjection to him that God may be all in as we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 9. Back to where Paul says that I am the, the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never forgets the destructiveness the havoc that he wreaked upon the early church and the Christians, the marriages that he broke up, the houses that he barged into, the people that he threw into prison. And, and he, he says, you know, that I'm not worthy to be an apostle. I am an apostle, but I'm not worthy of. And we, we see the humility in Paul throughout his life in the way in which he identifies himself. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. The way up is down. Humility is the chief virtue upon which the other virtues are are built and it is humility that allows a person to see the grace of God. It is pride that prevents us from seeing the grace of God. You know, I'm saved, but I, I, I'm a pretty good person. And so, you know, I only, I really only had a little bit of sin, but you had a lot, you know, of, uh, of sin. And, you know, and that, the, the pride prevents us from seeing the grace of God. And, and we see how Paul, throughout his life, continues to grow in that grace of humility. Paul was a go-getter. Paul was one of the most talented, one of the most intellectual people that, that ever lived. Born in Tarshish and raised there, he comes to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the chief of all of the rabbis. It's like saying he grew up and went to Harvard University and was Harvard educated. He sacrificed to go there, having to move there, to sit now underneath the feet, and he excelled. He was one of the most brilliant of Gamaliel's students, and, and he ends up a young member of the Sanhedrin. That is the, the ruling power there. He has this political career. He now is... Is recognized by the religious leaders, and and it was Paul who was given the special commission to stamp out the Christians. You remember how the religious leaders were so threatened by Christ and and had him crucified. Well, now his followers are growing, and they still have a problem. And Paul. Paul is the one who is uh, heading up this entire operation, the most important of operations to the Jews. 
And it was there on that road to Damascus that he encounters in Christ. And, and Paul was a student of the word. There are some who believe that Paul may have memorized more scripture than any person has ever memorized. But in all of that, he couldn't see Christ. In all of the scriptures, he couldn't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah until God revealed himself. Paul would later write that the trappings of this world, everything that I ever achieved in this lifetime, he says, is rubbish compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul begins, he's called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul really wants to be the, the apostle to the Jews because he knows the scriptures and, and, and he couldn't see Christ in the scriptures until, until it was illuminated to him. And now he wants to show every single other Jew that can't see Christ in the scriptures, Christ in the scriptures, but he's not called to the Jews. He's called to the Gentiles. Jews are afraid of him because of what he did in the early church, and they don't trust him. It's that, yeah, <laughs> Paul is now a Christian, right? No, I'm not trusting him. He's just trying to get the names of everybody. This is just his next level, and, and we want nothing to, to do with him. Paul, when he writes his letters, you know, in Ephesians, he just simply says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm an apostle by the, the will of God. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to see when he is now giving his credentials, he says, you know, uh, I, I'm a fool for boasting. You've compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. He says, the, the, the most eminent apostles, there isn't anybody that has a greater importance than me. I am equal to the most eminent of the apostles. Peter, the leading apostle, and others, I, I am an apostle. I am equal to him. When Paul compares himself to the other apostles, he says, I am equal to every single one of them. But in Philippians, Paul is not comparing himself to apostles anymore. By the time we get to Philippians, he writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just a bondservant of Jesus Christ. When he writes Ephesians, he's not comparing himself to the apostles. And when he looks at just the other believers, the other saints, he says to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, when Paul looks at himself against the other Christians, He says, I'm the least of all of the saints. The amount of grace that was given to me. At the very end of his life, when he writes to Timothy, he's no longer 
comparing himself to the apostles. He's no longer even comparing himself to the other saints. Now he compares himself to the sinners. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We see the downward progression. Comparing himself to the apostles, comparing himself to the believers, comparing himself to the sinners. And in each of those, we see the incredible experience of Paul in the grace of God. You see, humility is what allows us to see the grace of God. Humility is the, that, that virtue that now opposes pride. Pride has been viewed as the root of all sins. Satan has attributed his fall to pride and humility being the opposite of pride is what guards our hearts against that, that rebellion against God. Humility reflects the nature of Christ. And so, we seek now to follow after the Lord. The grace of God. I'm not who I was. I am what I am today by the grace of God. But the incredible gift of that grace to each and every one of us, that you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Paul can't believe with everything that he did in his life that God loves him. And the more that he reflected on that, I deserved I deserve to be cast out. I deserve the consequences of my sin. That's what I deserved. And instead, I found the grace of God. Amazing grace. And do you know what? In each and every one of our lives, that is our story. That none of us was deserving. Paul would write, in my flesh dwells no good thing. There's none righteous, no, not, not one. And yet, God loves us. God's crazy about you. God has the hairs on your head. And the psalmist writes, what is man that you are mindful? He sees his own wicked heart and says, God, how can you love me? And yet, it is the grace of God that now we have that incredible, incredible love. And so may we just continue to just grow down, grow down deep, continue to pursue the word of God empowered by the spirit of God, that God might continue to do a great work in each and every one of us for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And God, we ask that you would just help us to continue to grow down. That Lord, as we grow down, that we would exalt the grace that you have given to each and every one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.